Hello, my name is Alexander Waugh and I'm very pleased today to welcome you to the first in our series of 1740 podcasts. We're going to be talking to Earl Sharman, who is the president of the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship, and I'm joined here by Maudie Lowe. Hello. Who is a hello, Maudie. She's a very keen Oxfordian, but of recent standing and uh, doesn't believe she has the amount of knowledge that we do, but I bet she does. Uh, but she's going to join the conversation. And we're going to talk about all aspects of Earl Showerman's uh, dedication to the Oxfordian premise. And I was going to ask first, Earl, about your name, because in England, we don't call each other Earl um, for really purely snobbish reasons, actually. And given that you and I and Maudie all believe that Shakespeare was actually an Earl, the 17th Earl of Oxford, a great uh, poet and playwright of his day who hid his name. Uh, it causes difficulties in England, very grave difficulties. My mother once said to me, I don't care who Shakespeare is so long as he's not an earl. And <laughs> I said to her, that's pretty odd because your father was an earl. What have you got against earls so especially? Uh, but there is a, a visceral reaction to the idea of a white, privileged, tough aristocrat being Shakespeare, whom everybody loves so much. Certainly that's the case in England. Do, do, you, do you get that sense in America too, or are Americans less uh, snobbish about that problem oh i think far less snobbish in that regard i don't think the hierarchical structure that has uh, been preeminent in england for the last couple thousand years uh is uh, effective here uh, we're a more radical view of things and of course we're more inventive of naming i suppose now to, to admit it fully i am named after the famous american radical po political leader so uh I, I i presume i can bear that one fairly well and I was awarded the uh, first Earl of Ashland honor in 2005 when the Shakespeare Oxford Society and Fellowship held their first joint conference, which is the beginning of the reunion of our organizations and the real launch of the American movement, I think, in its uh, fullest uh, realization. The pianist, uh, the English would 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 frown upon that because they would say, well, you're you're trying to pass yourself off as a counterfeit nobleman. Uh, but I don't think you're trying to do that, are you, Earl? No, 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 no. I, I am the president, however, and so in a democratically uh, governed institution, I seem to have been enough popularity to, to rise after 20 years. You know, I was originally recruited to be on the old Shakespeare Fellowship Board because of where I live, which is in the vicinity of Ashland, Oregon, the home of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which is now in its 85th year, uh, a preeminent American repertory theater company that has won several Tony Awards for productions uh, and was the inspiration for my whole love of Shakespeare and, of course, the discovery of the richness that comes from behind understanding the, from the authorship point of view and, and appreciating the art uh, directly, uh, as it might have been from the author with a, you know, realized uh, image in the form of the Edward de Vere. Could you tell me a little bit more about the Oregon Shakespeare Festival? Oh, I'm so proud of it. You know, I moved here in 1974, so almost 50 years ago. At that time, there was uh, two theaters at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, uh, the, the Angus Bomer Theater and the Elizabethan Theater, which seats about a thousand people, which goes back to the 1930s. 
And it was initially inspired by a man named Angus Bomer, who was a uh, professor at the Southern Oregon Teachers College at the time. And on the 4th of July weekend, he and students produced uh, The Merchant of Venice and I think uh, uh, Twelfth Night. He loved playing Shylock. He played Shylock famously for the, the next 25 years. Uh, and uh, gradually the community absorbed this as a very important celebratory thing and expanded from a 4th of July weekend to a complete summer program in an old Chautauqua Center right in the middle of town next to this beautiful 100-acre park, a gorgeous facility that they converted gradually over the years into a first-class a theater down the Paul Allen named after Paul Allen, who helped, uh, you know, make that such an incredible outdoor venue for uh, play production. We saw a, uh, a production of The Tempest this uh, past September during our conference, which was so wonderful. This reminds me of all the great things I've experienced uh, because of my living in that in that neighborhood of that theater. I had friends at the hospital where I worked. Uh, and I spent 30 years as an ER doc in that region um, who were involved with the festival. One of them was the head of the volunteer Redcoat group that that uh, served as volunteer uh, ushers and got to see all the shows. So that's really how I got into it, through volunteerism, uh, inspired by friends I met at the hospital. And then, you know, in the mid-1980s, uh, I read a review of Charlton Ogburn's Mysterious William Shakespeare being really interested in Shakespeare and having read the plays and done some study at university, um, I got Ogburn's book and, and then that that was fantastic. It took me another 20 years to get uh, beyond my medical career and, and fully immersed in, in Shakespeare studies and, and the authorship question. And have you, did, have you found the organizers and the actors there, you're obviously in quite close contact with them, do, do, do they repudiate your views on the identity of Shakespeare or are they open and fairly interested in it? Oh, it's quite interesting. I mean, it's really quite, uh, um, there's a wide spectrum. However, the previous executive director, Paul Nicholson, who was for 25 years uh, the main person as executive director of the program, uh, was a member of Rotary, the Rotary organization in, in, in Ashland. And I was invited by my friends who were Rotarians to speak on the authorship question. I was terrified. There's Paul Nicholson, the man who's ultimately responsible for the successful operation of the Shakespeare Festival. And there I'm preparing a discourse that's going to challenge in 20 minutes the, the assumptions of attribution. Well, um, I came out, I came out pretty well at the beginning because I honored the Rotarians for having been the number one non-governmental organization to, uh, uh, prevent, uh, polio through vaccination programs worldwide. They were num numero uno. And I started off with that because my mother had polio and, you know, so I expressed my great appreciation for everything that they were doing to save that kind of problem. So I felt I was on a good footing to begin with. And then I gave my little spiel. And there was appropriate, uh, uh, you know, questioning afterwards. There was no uh, brouhaha. And afterwards, Paul Nicholson came up to me and said, you know, Earl, I kind of think the same way you do about the whole attribution question. And that was just an amazing moment of, ex of, of realization and acceptance. Uh, I couldn't believe. Now, later, Paul did sign the Declaration of Reasonable Doubt and a ceremony we had in 2010 at the Ashland Conference we had for our uh, fellowship organization. And uh, not only did he sign, but several other members of the acting company signed, Jamie Newcomb and Chris Duvall, who were two of the finest actors in that company for so many years. 
and then an artistic director of a regional uh, theater, uh, Olivia Janine signed it. And we had Chris Coleman from Portland Center Stage and uh, Stephen Moore from Carmel. So we had a whole West Coast artistic directors uh, uh, for theater groups and local actors and patrons, uh, and including Paul Nicholson signing the declaration. That was really a, a great high moment. But I've been very lucky, lucky, uh, Alexander, because of that association, you know, so... So yep. and it was by sheer luck that I actually got to meet Michael Cecil, the Ar- Marcus of Exeter, during that first year of Shakespeare studies back in 2004. So serendipity and luck have driven me in the right direction for the better part of 20 years here. So I feel very fortunate, very fortunate. Yeah. So so you've been at this game quite a long time. Have you noticed a, a shift in, in that time, in 20 years, uh, you know, to do with the reaction that people have to you when you say that this is what you believe Shakespeare was. Because it, my feeling is very strongly that when I started out in this game, which maybe was 15 years ago, uh, the reaction was very negative. And I really don't sense that anymore. I find that people are much more grown up and interested in it, much more willing to to talk about it than they used to be. Is that is that your feeling too? Absolutely. I think the um, frontline program in 1989 in the U.S. source, and then it's, you know, was the opening of a lot besides Charlton Ogburn's book. But I remember when 2004, I was taking a Shakespeare studies class and the uh, professor asked why we were taking the class. And when they came around to me and I'd already been taking it from several other instructors at Southern Urban University. And I was not afraid at that point to acknowledge that I was an Oxfordian. I, I did not acknowledge that in, in relation to with the director of the Shakespeare Studies program, Alan Armstrong. But I had to reveal myself to several other instructors and both of them responded very positively. Neither of them at that point were tenured faculty, of course. Both of them were open-minded. And in fact, Liz Eckhart, uh, who, uh, you know, was just a total inspiration teacher, uh, encouraged me to write my first paper on Hamlet and Orestes. And it was a 50 page single space paper. I was so happy and, and excited by what, what I could be discovering. And you start, you know, goldmine like Hamlet and it just goes on and on. So, uh, no, I didn't have any problems with that. But, uh, when the students were asked, in the class back in 2004, who was aware that there was an authorship question? Nobody raised their hand. Nobody. So mm-hmm. at that time, the general student awareness of it was was nil. Though today that would not be true at all. It would be very much different. And uh, having been involved in lifelong learning programs, I know that that's a, that's a place where people have grave interest. Remember, Alexander came along with four other uh, uh, British Oxfordians. Uh, Ross Barber, of course, along for the ride, and Julia Cleave, and, you know, Eddie Jolly and Kevin Gilvery came to Ashland in 2015, and we had 140 people come out to hear you guys speak. It was the largest symposium ever put on by Ollie in its history. And I slept slept in the room that you're sitting in now on the sofa. (laughs) (laughs) You did. So we've had a grand time spreading the word. In our region, it's a hotbed. I mean, we have about... Four local lifetime members of the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship now. So it's very different now from before. But you have to be kind of careful how you present it. I mean, 
Uh, Barry Kraft is a local dramaturg and a Shakespeare actor, wonderful, wonderful person, and is incredibly knowledgeable. And um, our friend Tom Woosnan has been uh, close with Barry for many years and trying to get him to read Diana Price's book, but he won't, you know. So there are places and people who are really set on the myth and love their life uh, with the belief that they've carried in their heart and the image of the author, which is something that uh, Patrick Stewart has, certainly. When he came um, with the Royal Shakespeare Company to, to, in 2006 to Ann Arbor, they put on uh, Julius Caesar, um, uh, Anthony Cleopatra and the Tempest, and he played Prospero, um, and came to our conference, actually, after we'd seen the show the night before, which was done in a, in a, in a kind of Nordic, uh, you know, Inuit style, brilliant production, and he was fabulous. He was so good to, to speak to us and to come in and just share his experience of being a theater. But he says, I go to Stratford, you know, and, and, and spend time in meditation and, you know, the places that I believe, you know, for him, it, it was a ritual of uh, connection and belief. Um, so who would ever want to challenge that? Although I did give him a copy of my Lord of Oxenford's mask, the <laughs> CD I helped produce. I was the executive producer of uh a uh, lute duet, uh, a Mignarda, Ron Enrico, and uh, um, uh, Mrs. Stewart, and they have such a, a beautiful place. And so I gave it to him. He says, well, I said, some of these songs are, are the lyrics that Edward de Vere wrote. But, you know, the reason they are kind of like that is that they're, they're song lyrics. They weren't serious poetry in that sense. So maybe you'll like this music. Yes. And I think you can still get that CD. Am I right? Yes, that's correct. You can buy it yeah. online. Yeah. My Lord of Oxenford's Mask. Yeah. It, it evolved out of a, a collaboration. Again, such great luck and serendipity. They were living in the mountains outside of Ashland and knew a friend of mine who was a physician and a musician. And I asked if they would be able to perform uh, some the lute duets that are from the Tudor interlude Orestes, Horestes as it's spelled, and they they agreed to it. And so, well, I gave a presentation on that Tudor interlude as possible a proto-Hamlet in many ways uh, and showing uniqueness about it. And this 1569 uh, was when it was produced, I think, at Gray's Inn. Uh, so it, it, to me, it was very, very uh, hot topic and wonderful that had musicians on the stage with me so they would perform the songs from the interlude in between my discourse on it. So... You know, and they, I asked them if they could record what we had done because it might be of some value. And they said, well, let's do a little CD. And in about a month, it was done and produced in another couple of weeks. And just yeah. going back to what we were saying about how to approach the authorship question, I've noticed with a lot of my friends and family that there's not so much of a taboo uh, around it anymore. And actually, they're quite eager to find out. If you could recommend one book for someone who is new to the authorship question, what would it be? Oh, well, it, you know, that's such a wonderful question. I've used so many books in, in my classes over the last decade at the Lifelong Learning Program in Ashland. Um, you know, Charlton Ogburn's tome, it's 800 pages. Uh, Richard Whelan, of course, wrote a very nice 150, 200-page book, you know, Who Was Shakespeare?, um, I love Hank Whittemore's A Hundred Reasons the Earl of Oxford with Shakespeare. I think there's, uh, he yes. dives down into so many wonderful things. Now, Mark Anderson's Shakespeare by Another Name 
Yeah, Mark Margot is looking at a, a new edition of that book, but of course, to me, that was the preeminent biographical thing. And of course, Mark Margot, well, Mark came in 2005 to Ashland the year the book was published. So our first conference was at the time his book came out, and I thought that was brilliant. You see, 180 pages of citations and footnotes. Come on, that is a scholarly work of, of first order. You know. Uh, James Shapiro's, you know, uh, you know, commentary and his cr- criticism of of the authorship question, and you know, the, basically has a, a bibliographic uh, biography at the end of it. it. That is the that is all. It's not not scholarly at all. Margot's work was unbelievable. So it was a uh, that is that's what I would really recommend. But of course, Elizabeth Wink- Winkler's book, you know, Shakespeare was a woman and other heresies. That's coming out in May. Um, to me, perhaps that's the book I would recommend. I just enjoyed very much reading Stephanie's, Stephanie Hughes' book, Educating Shakespeare. I used that as a basis for some discussion in my lifelong learning class this year. So I called it Shakespeare's Books. Um, but it, she really uh, does well. But I think you almost have to be a converted Oxfordian before you would appreciate her work for what it really is. Yeah. Have you have you actually read Elizabeth Winkler's new book? Have you? I have not had the privilege. No, um, it's coming out in April, isn't it? Shakespeare uh, was a woman in here, but maybe April in London. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, and Elizabeth Winkler, of course, is a highly intelligent um, uh, mainstream journalist, and so it's quite. I, I think it's going to have quite a big effect. That book, when it comes out, is going to have a lot of backlash against her. In fact, I gather that she's already been receiving some hate stuff on Twitter for the. So, Oliver Cam showing himself again. One of the things, one of the great problems about the Shakespeare authorship question is you, it is actually a two-step process. You have to eliminate uh, William Shakespeare of Stratford, which is how we call him, because in fact, he never put this E after the K. And so it's easier because otherwise you get rather simple-minded people saying, of course, Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. But what we're trying to ascertain is whether William Shakespeare was the same as the man who called himself William Shakespeare or whether it was a pseudonym. So, so I, I mean, I would advise someone who's new to the subject, they've got to eliminate Shakespeare of Stratford first. And there, I think there are two pretty good books on that. Um, the one is, one is called The Unorthodox Biography. Uh, you know that one by um, Diana Price. Diana Price, Price. Exactly. Oh, yes. And the other one, and I'm worried it's out of print, is it's called The Shakespeare Problem Restated by someone called Greenwood, uh, published in 1908. Beautifully written. He was a lawyer and an MP and a very clever man. And he just completely squashed the idea of William of Stratford in 1908. I mean, one really wonders what, since that book came out, why I was even bothering to talk about it. <laughs> but, <laughs> He but, is yeah. quite eloquent. Yes, his uh, one, his law, uh, the Shakespeare in the Law uh, edition from Brief Chronicles that just came out this year. Alexander has an article by him, uh, rebutting uh, uh, other lawyers who had critiqued his, you know, analysis of Shakespeare's uh, knowledge of the law, and it was so cleverly written. Uh, it was enticing. We really, uh, he he was a wonderful writer, and uh, he was brilliant and humorous, yeah. and he was a lawyer himself, so he really yes, would have. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. No, it really made me want to read more Greenwood uh, after reading that one one article that's in the Shakespeare in the Law edition. Yes. Well, so his famous book was called The Shakespeare Problem Restated. That's a 1908 one. And he doesn't take a side about who the candidate is, but he completely destroys the idea of Shakespeare of Stratford. Then he was quite highly praised for that, but also highly criticised. 
uh, and he wrote a second book, which was equally thick, which was basically an answer to his critics in which he totally demolished them again. (laughs) (laughs) And it's great fun. I mean, you find yourself not only being very impressed by his knowledge, but constantly chuckling at the way he puts things and the way he throws great big bowling balls at his enemies. He is brilliant. Well, you know, uh, Lord Campbell's book of Shakespeare's legal acquirement uh, was answered in the following year by John Charles Bucknill's Shakespeare in Medicine. Basically, he was he dedicated his book to Lord Campbell, whose analysis of Shakespeare's legal uh, knowledge was remarkable, uh, and that said that well, he's actually more knowledgeable in medicine than he is, seems to be in the law. And so it was like a competition between doctors and lawyers. It was wonderful. And Bucknell's book was outstanding. He later wrote another book about uh, Shakespeare and mental illness. Uh, and insanity, uh, because he was the director of the psychiatric institute in Exeter. So, uh, his writing was excellent also. Yeah. So, so can I ask you, you've quite recently taken on the presidency of the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship. And obviously, apart from books, which I suppose individual writers are doing, do you have a kind of program of things that you would like to do or are doing in order to promote the truth about who wrote the Shakespeare works? Mm. Oh, uh, so well, that's a wonderful question. Well, I think that there's so many ways of approaching that, but we continue as the Devere Society does with publishing the best scholarship that's available on this, these questions. You know, you're coming out in this coming year with the great Oxford one, two, and three series. And we have these brief chronicle series in addition to the Oxfordian and our newsletters that are providing, you know, access to information that online and the, uh, and freely available to anybody really in the world for, for the most part. Uh, and so, yes, I think there's uh, a lot going on. Uh, we have, of course, Winkler's book coming out and she is going to be the, uh, speaker, uh, the keynote address at our conference in New Orleans. Uh, so we're very, very happy to have that equation. And then there, there are other books coming out this year also. So it's a very good year. For uh, publications, uh, you know, Rima Greenhill's coming out with her book about Shakespeare and Elizabeth and Ivan. And uh, there's uh, the Brief Chronicles edition, uh, uh, the, the first folio, A Shakespearean Enigma, which Roger Strittmatter is editing and will be uh, probably published in May or June again this year. So and we'll probably have a Zoom session, a, an educational program around the first folio and the response uh to what's being published uh, from on the Stratfordian side uh, and critiquing that and responding to any critiques that we will incur in this 400th anniversary year. So a lot is going on uh, that in that regard. Uh, we have uh, employed a wonderful video videographer, Phoebe Near, who's making some wonderful videos that are posted on YouTube now and as well as her own TikTok following. So we're reaching out now. I have, I am envious of what the Shakespeare of the Devere Society does with their social media postings. Uh, and, uh, so we are working on expanding on that and, uh, we're doing through a search engine optimization programs with, uh, Jennifer Newton and Dorothea Dickerman kind of leading the way. Uh, so we're very, uh, active in, in, in a variety of ways and receive some grant money this year. So we have, we want to research grant, uh, Funding uh, applications are going to be out. Uh, we're looking forward to having a really robust conference with live streaming again. And it's a part of that expanded our operation in Ashland. We had, uh, because of the post-COVID, 
we usually would have 100 to 150 people come to our conferences. And we had, I think, 75 or 80 in Ashland. But then we live streamed to another 75 or 80 uh, at home. So we reached out to a, a really good audience and people were had access to those recordings for 30 days after the conference. So we intend to keep going in that direction. So I would encourage you as advanced as your technologies are and, and your public publication, uh, you know, endeavors, uh, start, start, uh, producing it so people across the, the, the pond can, can enjoy this. And we are going to suffer horribly by not being present on March 17th for the moot court, uh, <laughs> trial. I, I uh, believe Bob, Sanders, this is the yes. realization of a 10 year program because. Yeah, but, but hang 14, on. Um... Yeah, I should explain. There's a, there have been a few issues here. So what, what Earl is referring to here yeah. is a moot court trial to decide whether William Shakespeare, uh, of Stratford actually wrote any plays and poems. And to decide on the matter, we have three high court judges, which are as good as a judge gets in England. And we've got two cases. That's King's Council, uh, barristers, uh, which I think Americans call attorneys. Uh, one on the side of William Shakespeare of Stratford and one on the side uh, against him and saying it's a pseudonym. And we have two witness witnesses for the anti-Stratfordians. Uh, that is myself and Ros Barber, who you mentioned before. Now, this is where the thing gets into a problem, because we obviously needed two witnesses uh, for the Stratfordians. And we asked all the people who you would think we would ask, Stanley Wells, uh, Paul Edmondson. Now, these two together have co-edited a book called Shakespeare Beyond Doubt. So you would suspect they have no no worries or fears about coming and standing before a high court judge to say what they're in no doubt about. However, they've declined. Uh, we then did manage to get a, a senior lecturer from Birmingham University on, on Shakespeare, who was called uh, Ro- Abigail Rockerson Woodall, uh, yesterday or the day before, she said, unfortunately, she couldn't do it uh, on account of something to do with her children. I don't know. It didn't seem to make any sense. And we're very, very close to the 18th now. And we're in a desperate scurry uh, to find Stratfordians who will come and stand as witness. And it's going to spoil the event considerably if we don't get them. And I think they know this. However, we have found an actress called something Kelly who's going to stand up, but we'd really like another one. And this is the problem we always have. Earl, you will remember that a group of us raised £40,000 and offered it to the Shakespeare Birthdays Trust to do exactly this sort of exercise, to come and stand by the very tenets which their whole charity is based upon and come and convince a panel of neutral judges that Shakespeare of Stratford did write plays and poems, and they were too cowardly to do it, and they ran away in the opposite direction. So I, I, I love your smile and how pleased you are to hear we're doing it, but I have to tell you there are problems still, but because the Stratfordians, rather than face the facts, will always rather run away and just leave us in a, in a ship on our own trying to shout our own point across the but it is going ahead it's going to happen whatever happens uh but i just wish it would have the impact that it should have uh which it would have if we had two serious stratfordian witnesses wow that's that's a story in itself uh the resistance to going forward you know the u.s supreme court in the the 1980s after ogburn's book was published you know, three of the justices agreed to hear that trial, which is still available. You can actually access that on, on YouTube, I believe, uh, which, you know, convinced John Paul Stevens to look more seriously into the question, of course. And then he came out uh, as an Oxfordian and was in 2009, the Oxfordian of the year. And uh, 
four representatives, legal representatives of our organizations were invited to the Supreme Court and went into his chambers and had a private conversation with him. So I don't think today we would we could get a Supreme Court uh, uh, series of judges to to hear the case. Justice Scalia, who passed away, uh, was an Oxfordian, or at least an anti-Stratfordian. Uh, Sarah Day O'Connor, a previous uh, 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 you know justice, was uh, a signatory of the Declaration of Reasonable Doubt. And when you bring this up, Alexander, I, I uh, do remember I should have also said that the Shakespeare Beyond Doubt exposing an industry in denial, which was published in 2014, immediately in the wake of the Shakespeare Beyond Doubt uh, that the, uh, the uh, Cambridge University Press published for the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust Collective. Uh, and that to me was amazing uh, and, and incredible that you and John Sheehan put that together in a matter of months. And that to me also is an excellent introductory uh, text, which I've taught from uh, because of all the other superb articles that are within that uh, that that uh, that collection of essays, which of course out outsold on Amazon considerably the Birthplace Trust sponsored uh, diatribe, you know, uh, and they by trying to defend it, they know they, they have so many lacunae in the argument, you know, about defending the traditional attribution. Um, and the obvious problem that they that they represent by the um, Stratford upon Avon or Stratford fraud upon Avon that you've exposed in the Shakespeare and Court series book that you published. So I think that uh, they have a lot of weaknesses and they don't want to be exposed in a, in a public event. And uh I understand that Richard Clifford was help, help, most helpful in helping realize this. And you, you were so fortunate to have such honorable and intelligent and gifted people uh, supporting your, your cause in Great Britain. Uh, the, the relationship with Sir Derek and Mark Rollins' involvement, it's so wonderful to have people who are at the supreme uh, achievement in their career and a long, long careers of greatness and, and uh, you know, talent beyond belief in, in their dramatic production being our, on our side of the argument it makes them very uncomfortable. They think we're crazy, but we know better. <laughs> oh, what's been your most interesting interaction with a Stratfordian, would you say? Ah, this is a good one. Um, back in 2000 and Three through 2006, I was taking university classes, and one of them was from uh, the uh, director of the English department, uh, who uh, was a Stratfordian, of course. And um, we got to studying A Midsummer Night's Dream, and I really wanted to bring up the story of Alan Sun and as being represented by Bottom and uh, Queen Elizabeth as Titania because of my reading of Eva Turner Clark and others. So I thought the political allegory would add to the classroom's understanding and, and appreciation of the work. And my teacher Vern said, absolutely not. <laughs> so I had a headache that evening and I sent him an email and said, I'm sorry, Vern, we're going to be butting heads all semester. I just, I'm dropping out. That's the first time I ever <laughs> dropped out of a class of wow. any kind. Well, fast forward two years. Vern's wife is a friend and she is the direct development director of an organization I'm on the board with a local healthcare organization. And we're at a barbecue together. Vern and his wife, Maria, who's a lovely, lovely woman, and uh, Ken, who's the uh, medical director. And he turns to me with this sly grin on his face and say, Earl, you know, what does, what does Vern think about your, your, your belief in the attribution of the authorship? He was just, you know, pointing up. And I saw Vern turn kind of red. And I said, you know, can Vern and I agree on 90% of what this work is all about? We love it. 
we just have a different idea about where Maryland come from. That's the simple difference between us, you know. And Vern didn't say a word. And then he emailed me later that night. He says, I am sorry. I was so, you know, feeling out of control. Earl, come to my class. Say whatever you want. You got an hour and a half. Just tell me which week you want to come. So that was like, you know, the best outcome. Because I recognized our commonality and and honored it because I I believe that he was as sincere about his belief as I am about mine. You know, I I was having dinner with Jonathan Bate and and, and the subject came up and I was rather enjoying the discussion, I thought, and and I was scoring lots of points, et cetera, et cetera. My daughter, who was sitting next to me, realized that Jonathan was getting really, really angry. I, I hadn't, I was too insensitive and hadn't really spotted that. And suddenly my daughter gave me a massive kick under the table. <laughs> I said, why are you kicking me? <laughs> oh, you, you have become what my brother referred to me as the Obnoxfordian. <laughs> Obnoxfordian, okay. I, I, was, that one. I was furious for 30 seconds and then I realized a badge of honor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, but on the whole I think that um people are beginning to see sense, but there still is that that small clerk of people who wish to defend uh their citadel without feeling that they have to debate. Jo- um Stanley Wells who who perhaps is the head of the Stratfordianist movement in this country um said to me when I said would he would he care to have a debate with me about it he said he couldn't do that because he would get too angry well that that is at least honest I suppose yes. Uh, however, he has to remember that he's a man who wrote a book called Shakespeare Beyond Doubt, and is one of the few Stratfordian professors who have actually dived headlong into the subject of the authorship question. So it's very odd that he wants to run away every single time the um, uh, the matter comes up. And I, I'm beginning to be of the belief that actually those top professors who hold the Stratfordian position know perfectly well at very least that it's an extremely weak position and that's why they can't really bear they want to be able to say things are as they are and that's the end of the matter that's how they would like to conduct a whole debate on the subject they're in the citadel they are you know uh isolated on some level and so we have the access to public fora but they still have the respect of the media in too many ways. I think cre- being creative the way we have been and, and the a world that's opening up through, you know, various live streaming and other Internet connected connectivity, you know, options and means of transmitting information. There's means of, of attacking the Citadel that they are unwilling to respond to. And maybe they won't come out from behind their walls to to actually conduct a debate and honor that. Now, with James Shapiro was invited, perhaps you should start reaching out in the American direction and get somebody to fly over for this. Uh, there's there are people here, Greenblatt, who would certainly, you know, object to uh, anything like that, but they would never want to schedule something like that and turn up, is my guess. Yes. Well, if you remember, uh, was it about four or five years ago, uh, Shapiro brought out a book called The Year of Lear, 1606. And I, and I think, did you contribute too? Yes, um, yes. Uh, quite a lot of us got together and very quickly produced a book uh, called Contested Year, 
the <laughs> mistakes, errors and omissions in Shapiro's book. And that was in, enormously funny because then when you went on Amazon, it said people who have bought this book also bought this book. Uh, you know the way Amazon does that. So if you if you looked for Shapiro's book, because Shapiro is quite famous, up it came on Amazon. And yes. right next to it was a picture of our book say, saying <laughs> errors in that book. And lots of people bought this one, too, which was very good fun. But at the time, there were a couple of American radio um, radio stations who invited Shapiro to to come on with me. Uh, but he wouldn't he wouldn't do it. Oh, no. Yes. And I and I stayed in when I was in Los Angeles, I stayed with a man who sat on the board called um, Rothschild. Uh, I can't remember his first name, something Rothschild. And, and he sits on the board of the Folger. And so I said to him, Look, uh, why don't I why don't I come to the Folger? And give a talk to James Shapiro about why he's wrong. And anyway, he, he, he took it to the Folger, apparently totally <laughs> only silence on the board said no one's having a man anywhere near us. In, in, at the Cosmos Club uh, in Washington, D.C., a very, very uh, elite club. Uh, I had the privilege of visiting there. A physician friend of mine was a member. And uh, their role of, of membership is uh, of the highest quality. And they have an annual, a, a monthly Shakespeare group that meets. And uh, Rick Wagaman's been involved with them. He's a member of the club uh, and Bob Meyer and uh, other uh, Oxfordians. And uh, they had to actually form a separate group for those who were willing and interested in talking about the authorship question. So I have addressed the Shakespearean authorship group. That's a separate group. Uh, uh, and Roger Strittmatter spoke there recently on Shakespeare and the Law, and I understand there was a very good turnout, uh, and uh, they sold all copies of the, his his edition. So there's an interest in it, but the, you, you, the people who are really defenders of the realm are really uncomfortable with any commentaries on it. Yeah, you, I understand that, that the taboo is, is there, and that's what uh, Winkler's book is all about. It's about that relaxion, reaction, the overreaction, the taboo, the creation of a taboo, that of, of knowledge, you know, that is so uh, counter uh, the uh, reasonable considerations. What do you think is the biggest smoking gun evidence? Well, I I think sometimes you get behind the author's mask and you feel like you're really in the right place. And I think the Midsummer Night's Dream is exactly where I would go. I have to go to by play. You know, that would be the place that I would say this is the proof. Because of the amount of evidence that's turned up, not just by, uh, you know, Oxfordians, but by other scholars as well, that ties the Queen to, to Tanya and the Duke of Alençon to Bada, to write a political allegory of that monstrous humor built into it, which is multi-layered. To me, that is the most convincing piece of evidence that I've come upon in my 20 years of reading, that you cannot write a political allegory and have it produced and then, you know, uh, published during Elizabeth's lifetime that would associate her. And Jonathan Bates says this was unacceptable to have Elizabeth associated with some kind of monstrous, you know, thing would be totally intolerable. And Jonathan says as much, and I think Shakespeare and Ovid is what he's commenting on, that you can't associate the queen with Titania. When you do look at the evidence that that, uh, Eva Turner-Clark turns up in her Shakespeare's Illusions book, and another author named Marian Taylor quite independently turns up and points out all the other literature of that era, including Mother Hubbard's tale of uh, by Edmund Spencer and, and John Lilly's plays that are allegorical about the Queen's relationship with this Duke. To me, then, suddenly the political allegory part of it is absolutely convincing. I mean, yeah, I... By, by the way, Earl, when, um, when I first heard that Jonathan was writing 
a book called Shakespeare and the Classics, I immensely kindly, in a great energy and effort to myself and boredom, I went and photocopied a whole lot of articles that you had written. Oh, my goodness. About Shakespeare and and the Greek particularly. And I conveyed them to him. But I didn't actually, um, I haven't read his book. Did you read it? And did you find that he'd actually used, and I bet he didn't, if he did use, did he actually thank you for them? Did did you notice that he had used any of your material in that book? No, 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 no. He doesn't mention Euripides, Aeschylus, or Sophocles in any one of the uh, chapters. Now, the, the book is based on a series of lectures he, he gave uh, at a, at a, during a particular forum, I believe, over a series, maybe a years. Uh, but it has nothing to do with the Greeks whatsoever. Not one mention of that. And yet he calls it Shakespeare and the classics. Now, he makes many excellent points in that book about the richness of the Latin texts uh in 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 that book in you know in and his you know refer, references to Horace and besides Ovid and Seneca and and you know uh, the other comic playwrights Plautus uh and Terence so he he really expands on some level a level of understanding of Latin literature uh in Shakespeare uh and and so it's an excellent book in that regard that but not one mention of the Greeks uh and the Greek playwrights in particular uh, throughout that, of course, Plutarch, you know, he has plenty on Plutarch and he admits that he suggests that Plutarch is the reason Shakespeare seems to understand Greek drama. Uh, and Colin Burrow, who is also an immensely respected classicist and Shakespearean, you know, has made mention that that Shakespeare couldn't possibly have understood Aeschylus, uh, you know, in the original language uh, in, you know, so he he learned his his his, his uh, sense of Greek drama from Plutarch. Uh, and, you know, Bates says, oh, he learned a sense of uh, Greek drama and, 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 and from, you know, uh, Ovid. So, you know, they have these surrogate uh, literary masters that control them so they don't want to look at the Greeks. The yes, one so, series. So ben ben yes. Johnson says that, says that Shakespeare had small Latin and less Greek. Now, you obviously disagree with that because oh, you yes. quite carefully. So what, what do you think that Ben oh. Johnson was saying there? Was it just a lie oh. or was he being clever? You think clever? Oh, absolutely clever. And yet he's calling forth, you know, thunder and Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides. So he's, he's actually naming the sources right there, you know, that Shakespeare used. And later he mentions Aristophanes. And I believe, you know, there are a number of scholars that have recognized that uh, the, the Shakespeare's com- comedies are have Aristophanic qualities, you know. And it's certainly going back to people like Gilbert Murray, uh, his 2000, I mean, 19, 1914 essay, Orestes and Hamlet, A Study in Types, which was uh, presented at the British Academy in 1914. It, that 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 little fifty-page pamphlet changed my life when I found it in the library at the in Ashland at the Hannon Library, the wonderful Hannon Library that has eight thousand Shakespeare titles and the wonderful old sixteenth and seventeenth-century editions. But uh, Gilbert Murray hit the nail on the head, and he said there must be some form of archetypal transmission of dramatic types that gave all these parallels between the Orestes dramas of Aeschylus and Euripides uh, with Hamlet. Uh, he's just remarkable. Uh, he makes note of all these parallels, and you know, suddenly now I've got to start reading the Greek dramas to pick up on those on those cues. And he hit the nail on the head. Uh, Triton Collins was also there. He was sure that that Shakespeare had read Latin translations of the Greek plays uh, in a number of plays, you know, Titus Andronicus and others. Uh, that that Triton Collins, who's an eminent scholar at Cambridge. 
recognized. And so, you know, and then back in the, even in the mid uh, 19th century, scholars are recognizing how the Alcestis of Euripides, the one tragic comedy of the Greek drama, that uh, is the source of the winter's tale, the concluding, uh, 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 you know, scenes of the winter's tale. And yet that was pretty much ignored for the last century. Now, Jonathan Bate, your colleague, uh, was wrote a brilliant essay that was published in Japan that was cited in the Arden edition of Much Ado About Nothing, in which he makes a very solid argument about the Alcestis being the source of the final uh, scenes in Much Ado About Nothing, uh, but never admitted to in anything else he published outside of Japan in the translated uh, online edition that uh, uh, was cited in the Arden edition. So I, Claire McKeegan, professor at UCLA, mentioned this and so she developed that argument also that the Alcestis was the source of that final scene and of course that was the same story with the winner's tale uh and so that became an article that I was I wrote uh based on their simple straightforward analysis and expanded a little bit looking at all the allusions to Hercules that that are uh, very rich in that play and Hamlet and other plays and also drew some other conclusions. And eventually that article that I wrote got published uh, in Gale Publications, uh, 2012 Shakespeare Criticism. Uh, so I got very lucky. And uh, But Jonathan Bate himself uh, acknowledged that. And yet he never mentioned that in his book on Shakespeare and the classics. So he's got a, you know, a part of his uh, a brilliant mind that sees it. And yet the other part that that's in denial. Thank you, Al. One last question I just wanted to ask you was if you could go back to the first day that you started studying the authorship question, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, be happy. Because <laughs> you're embarking. Be happy. This is just starting. You have no idea how deep this could go. <laughs> yeah. Look, you see, you, you can't see this, but behind me are uh a number of volumes that I've purchased over the years because of my wow. love and obsession around this. Okay. So, so yeah, be happy uh, because you're about to get into something, but be careful. Um, and uh, I was, and I got lucky, be lucky. I suppose that's another thing that you could say. I, I was lucky as a physician. Uh, I'd say, uh, you know, I, that, that, that helped a lot being able to relate to people, to, um, analyze uh, a discourse uh, to perform as such as, a, as an emergency position, you were performing a lot. Um, I was very lucky to find a literary uh, endeavor, a career that matched in some regards the kind of intelligence and, and it, uh, looking inward that I achieved as a physician. So I got very lucky to have this whole whole life of the last 20 years as, a, as an investigator. I'm an investigative reporter. I'm like you. I'm, I'm beginning still, and I have yet work to do. So, uh, and I'm so pleased to have the association people as as successful and, and intelligent as Alexander and the other leadership and the, and the people who have been publishing and and uh, performing uh, and being highly creative in their own right uh, with narratives that are inspired by the narr- by the story we have. We don't always share the same conclusion but we're on the same path. And I think that you find a, when you find a golden thread like this that inspires you to investigate, to stay alive, to, to read, uh, to, uh, to talk, to teach, uh, then, then you're, you've been blessed. And so I think that's how I would, uh, I would say you've been blessed. You know, go for I it. I really agree with that. Thank you all very much. And thank you for talking about us. I, I wish we could, I wish we could go on, uh, just, just before you, 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 we depart hard and go on our own ways. 
Um, I'd like to point out that as chairman of the De Vere Society and your president of the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship, that we are not in uh, in uh, mortal combat with each other, that we are very close allies. There's always been a wonderful working relationship between the De Vere Society in England and the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship in America. And that I would encourage people um, to be members of both. And actually, a lot of people are members of both. So perhaps, Earl, you could um, lead us out. Out, as it were, uh, with with a few good reasons why uh, members of the De Vere Society or anyone else for that matter uh, should join the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship and what they get out of it and what fun there might be by being involved with it. Well, I can't tell you exactly how much it costs per year to be a member, but to be an online member would be about fifty pounds per year, something in that range. I, I, I can't, I don't know the equivalency right now, but it's forty four dollars American, and then you have access to all our journals and newsletters. And our uh, Blue Boar Tavern tonight, we are actually meeting and talking about the Strat Fraud upon Avon, uh, uh, you know, right up your your, your own alley there. So uh, those are things you would you would gain. Uh, you would have access to our all our uh, content, our web content in, in, in its most current form. Uh, most of our content is available to all members, but for the members that are actually uh, active in the year, uh, for the past year, they have access to the most recent Oxford you know, newsletters and all that. So we have a lot of uh, uh, benefits in that regard. Plus, it, for, it, it supports the research and understanding and expansion of our endeavors. Uh, and uh, we know, as you do, that we, we, we support research in this area. So I think if you wanted to stay up on the latest uh, stories that, that have come up in our newsletter, which has been edited by Alex McNeil over the last decade and is an outstanding, you know, every quarter, about 36 pages go out and uh, uh, always have good content uh, and book reviews and those kinds of information that might be of benefit to you. Now, I, I do uh, appreciate being a member of the DeVere Society this year. Uh, and I appreciate so much the work that people have, like you and Kevin Gilberry and the other leaders that have been part of the research and uh, publication and uh, maintenance and, and the great Oxfordian editions that are coming out. Our members should all know about that. And so I promise in my next uh, letter from the president, I'll have a conversation about our conversation and encourage our members to reach out and become members of the De Beers Society so that they can do this. And if you would promise me that you will start live streaming your important events. In the future. <laughs> We will. We will. Thank well, you very much. Thank you so uh, much. You're welcome. For uh, giving us that wonderful uh, insight into what's going on on your side of the herring pond. Thank you very much indeed, Maudie Lowe, who I hope will join me with for a number of other podcasts. We're hoping to make this into a series. If you know how to and if we set it up properly, then please press the right buttons to subscribe to it. And then you'll be notified when there's another podcast put down. But this is the very first. I enjoyed it enormously. And I suspect and hope very much that there'll be more to follow. Thank you, both of you. And see you next time. 